Hello and welcome to Little Inspirations with me, Declan Lawn. This is a podcast about the things in our lives, some big, some little, that help us get through those difficult times, the things that inspire us. So it could be anything from your favourite piece of art to a poem that just sticks in your head, a song that gives you strength, or that movie that you can just watch again and again. It's a podcast about the little building blocks of our well-being, the things that we rely on. Every week I'll be talking to a range of guests from various fields, from politics to the arts, business and academia. The show is made in conjunction with Inspire Wellbeing. My guest today is one of Northern Ireland's best-known journalists and broadcasters. Over a career that began in the mid-70s, she's covered some of the biggest stories in Northern Ireland, right from the Le Mans bombing of 1978 through to the Oma bomb of 98 and beyond. As well as flagship shows on BBC Northern Ireland, she's presented BBC Radio 4's Women's Hour and PM. So welcome to Little Inspirations, Wendy Austin. Hello, Jackson. Thanks so much for having me. I'm great. Thank you. Good. Uh, How has it been this last year for you? Because, of course, you left the BBC and then straight into lockdown, (laughs) so a lot of change. Wasn't quite the plan, really, I would have to say. But uh, yeah, we were, I literally, well, we'd had our farewell do, the four of us who left at the, just about, just this weekend, actually, the end of February. And um, it's, there was no time after that, really, that we all found ourselves in the house. I mean, I had always intended to to do some podcasts and so on, if I could, if I could get somebody to pay me something for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh I had some of that organised uh, a bit at that stage, but um, no, I suppose all the great plans for doing a bit of travelling and so on have been put on hold for a year. And how did you cope with it? Because you were at home with, was it just your husband, just the two of you? Yeah, well, um, so we were in slightly difficult, different circumstances, I suppose, to many people. Well, there were the two of us and Molly, who you just met there, who's our very large black dog. Yeah, um, she looks lovely. And normally, um, Frank would have been taking her for lots of long walks and so on. But um, just at the, a couple of days after our farewell do, um, he slipped on some snow in the garden and broke his leg very badly and ended up in one of those Elizaroff frames, you know, kind of Meccano set meets kebab oh. um, uh, for six months. So um, that was pretty challenging, uh, very challenging for him. Um, I mean, it did a fantastic job and he's, you know, exactly a year later. In fact, it was a year this morning um, since he fell. Um, but uh, he's not, he's back to doing his long walks and Molly's a happy girl again. Um, and he's had, since he had the frame off, he's had no pain whatsoever. But um, it was, uh, well, it was, it was very hard for him and you have to have somebody who looks after the pinholes and so on. So, but going into the gory details, um, I was the the nurse for that uh, period of time. Um, so, uh, you know, the, the only places that we went really were um, to Musgrave Park to see um, Mr. McMullen and the excellent physiotherapy team. But then as COVID took hold, um, those appointments became uh, rather more largely spaced, shall we say, and you know nobody was in a big rush to be going into a hospital for for any reason at that point. But anyway, he's fine now, um, and I suppose um, 
you know, if you were going to end up with something horrible happening to you, which meant that you were stuck at home for six months, being in that situation when everybody else was in a similar boat mm. was maybe not the worst thing, you know. But um, but he's fine now, and I suppose you know I think he feels bad at the moment because he says the rest of us are also completely cheesed off with being locked up again, yeah. and yet he's in whoopee, I can get out for a walk and I'm not yes, hurting and everything's grand. So he's happy as Larry. Oh, so he, he <laughs> feels like like spring has sprung and, and every everything's getting better. And, you know, in, in a sense, maybe it is. I was reading some news this morning about vaccine efficacy from a Scottish study saying that even after a first dose, the efficacy is incredible. So, you know, I'm looking out the window, the sun is shining. I'm, I'm feeling a little bit more optimistic this morning than I did last week. Yeah, it's... it's um... I don't know. Uh, as well, we're both kind of old news hounds, and mm. it's not something that I ever thought I would hear myself saying. But um, I just—I mean, I—I I, I suppose I'm selective about what I read, and I'm selective about what I watch and listen to now. Because if you were to listen to and watch all of it, mm. your head would be melted all mm. the time um, instead of yeah. just some it's, of the time. It's funny. Do you do you get a little sense of relief about not having to be across everything? Because I I presented radio for about a year, year and a half, and I felt that my duty to consume every bit of news and to be religiously on social media all the time, even to follow sports that maybe I'm not I'm not that into. You know, I, I would be like, oh, what's happening here? And then the football, or what's happening in the rugby? The stuff that I'm, you know. And when I left doing radio all the time. I felt a, a real sense of, of relief and release that I, I didn't have to know everything anymore. Yeah, me too, I have to say. Uh, I mean, I absolutely, I suppose, you know, if, uh, when I look back at all of the different programmes that I did, the one that I liked the best, I think, was probably Good Morning Ulster. Yes. You know, there's something, there's something which is a real privilege about waking people up and uh, setting the agenda for, for their day. Mm. Although it didn't always feel like that because some of the news was pretty grim. But mm. you do, you become obsessed with it, I think, really, don't you? You know, you feel yeah. you have to have it all in your head. And, yeah, you do. Um, and once I stopped doing talk back um, and went to uh, Inside Business, which was the another programme that I really, really enjoyed doing. And, mm. uh, and it was much more... Um, uplifting, I suppose, in a way, you know, when you, you do hear some fantastic stories about brilliant Northern Ireland businesses and it yeah. makes you think, well, that's terrific. And at that stage, I didn't feel it was quite so important to, you know, waking up to the news, mm. you know, listen to it at lunchtime, listen to it at tea time, watch it in the television, you know, see the 10 yeah. o'clock, watch news night, yeah. you know, for heaven's sake. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I know you don't realise how exhausting it is and how actually not that many people in the world follow it as much as we as we would have done. But I, I do want to talk to you about journalism because it's um, you joined the BBC really right in the middle of the worst of the troubles. Um, I think it was 1976. Six, was it? The 19th of November. It was my birthday. The 19th of November, 76. So... I mean, things were really, really dreadful then. You were a young journalist. There wouldn't have been really any support or kind of counselling or anything in place. And you must have seen some terrible things. Uh, I think that's very true. Um, I did I did see some uh, very distressing things. Um, 
And there was there was no help when you went to the club or you went to the pub, and that was about it, really. Um, and I think, you know, when I look back on it uh, and think of some of the people that I worked with as well, um, I suppose in a, in a way, because I was, I think at that stage, the only woman in the newsroom, I was less likely to be sent to the really horrible markings. And I was also quite junior at that stage. So I, mean, I, I became senior quite quickly. Um, I went to the BB in 76. Uh, I got a what was that then a regional journalist's job, which was the kind of general runabout reportery person job mm -hmm. um, uh, in 77, I think, uh, 78. And I did that for a couple of years. And then I became a reporter, which was quite an important thing. And there were only four or five of us. And mm. um, at that stage, then I did get sent to, to the, the, the nastier things, if you like. But for the um, cameramen, and they were all cameramen in those days, and sound recordists um, and the people who were more likely to be sent uh, to that kind of thing. It was pretty ghastly. One of my worst memories, and it's interesting that your memory has all kinds of different um, textures to it, if you like, but one of the strongest ones I think is smell. Mm -hmm. um, when I always think, when I think of my granny, I always think of her conservatory which was full of geraniums and pelargoniums and the smell of those plants immediately transports me back to, to Ardcane and to Derry mm -hmm. but I can remember going to do a story about um, the bomb on the Dublin train uh, and I think it was the next day and the train was being taken that that carriage was being taken away uh, and there had been if I remember correctly two people killed and that one of whom was a Nigerian accountant, if I remember correctly. Right. Um, and they opened the doors of this. It was one of those, um, you know, those trains where there was a long corridor and then there were those kind of bits off it that you opened a door into. Yes, yeah, like the little compartments. Yeah, exactly. Mm. And it had been in one of those compartments and the smell in that compartment uh, was just something I have never forgotten. I mean, I, I just wonder... What do you think got you through those times as a young journalist dealing with all of that horror day in, day out? I don't know. I mean, there, there were a couple of stages now where, where I did struggle. Uh, more so when I was a cub reporter in Larne. I was there during the Ulster Workers' Council strike. Mm. Um, and it was a pretty scary place now, to mm -hmm. be honest with you. You know, the uh, East Antrim Times offices were in Main Street, Pound Street, I think it was called. Actually, uh, we were beside. We were in the old bank building, and um, I can remember on, on one occasion, uh, fairly early on in the strike, uh, and Lauren was uh, Lauren was kind of shut, and the power was off from the very first day. Um, and uh, one of my colleagues said, "You know, gosh, look look at this." And we looked out the window, and um, the UVF were marching down the middle of the road, uh, wearing kind of animal masks. Animal masks. Yeah, like pigs and sheep and things. Oh, that sounds surreal. Uh, it was. It was. Um, I could say it was very frightening. And I said, <laughs> I wasn't for going anywhere. But he said, No, come on. You know, we've got to go and see what's going on here. And we followed them down the street, and they stopped outside the police station, um, and kind of you know formed up in in ranks. Um, 
And then we went to, round to the front to see what was happening and tried to get into the police station to look at it from that side and they wouldn't let us in. Um, so we had to kind of slink away again. But I can remember going into one of the local shops near the, near the office after that. And one of the guys with the pig mask came in and uh, he asked for, you know, I don't know, I'll, I'll make this up, 10 wood band and a you know, copy of the local paper. Mm. And the guy behind the counter said, there you are, Sammy, or whatever his name was, <laughs> away you go. But I got really scared at that stage. And I was um, living in a flat in Gardenmore House, you know, those the tar blocks, there's only one oh, of them yes. left now, I think. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I had a flat there, and uh, which my uh, former student colleagues were incredibly jealous of. And um, uh, it only had one door in and out, and it was on the 13th floor. And everybody knew where you lived and all that mm. kind of thing. And they weren't very keen on the Telegraph because they felt that it was uh, against the strike and so on. Mm. And I must say, at the end of it, when the strike ended, uh, shortly after that, then was the Oxford Street bomb, and all of that. Mm. And I just, I kind of ran away for a few days and just got on a plane and Went and stayed with some friends in England and got myself out of it. But uh, there's quite it, a lot of pressure, you know. It, it's, it's amazing when you think about the, the reservoir of trauma and stress and bad memories that exist in Northern Ireland about that time. You know, just amongst everyone from, from journalists to probably to doctors and nurses and the things people were forced to deal with. And, and often sometimes when you're talking about it too, it's in things that seem... Uh, kind of mundane or, or, or just surreal, like like men w- walking with these w- weird animal masks, like something out of a horror movie. The th- those are the things that stick in your head. It's incredible. Yeah, it is very much so. I mean, it's those snapshot images, really, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. And totally. you do remember how you felt at the time. I've got to say, I was, I mean, I was really... <laughs> I'd, I'd never, well, as you said, it was surreal. I'd never seen anything like it. And I can remember other things too, you know, when you said about doctors and nurses and so on. I mean, my, my dad was a dentist and uh, my family were all very medical. My uh, mum's brother, Uncle Bob, was an orthopaedic surgeon um, mm. and had to deal with a lot of terrible injuries. But I can remember I had a car accident on one occasion in the, in the early 70s. And... Um, I wasn't that that badly hurt, but I'd, uh, I'd hit the mirror in the car, and you know when, when you cut your face it, or head, it bleeds, it bleeds a lot. A lot. Yeah. Um, so they were trying to kind of stop me from bleeding all over the emergency department. Um, and the man who was in charge on that occasion was um, a, now a very well known, and sadly no longer with us, a man called William Rutherford, who was the emergency consultant in those days. He was an absolutely delightful individual. Mm. And um, I had to wait for quite a long time to see anybody on that day. It was uh, the beginning of August in about 72. Um, and when he came in, he it was like he had a kind of butcher's apron almost, you know. Mm. he I don't know what he had been dealing with, but it was mm. far worse than what had happened to me. Wow. Mm. And I can remember going back, you know, for one of those follow-up appointments and having to wait for ages again. And he came in and said, I'm so sorry, but, you know, there was a bomb this morning. And we've been dealing with it all day. And, you know, that was their daily mm. existence. Uh, you know, I mean, I just had to 
deal with tiny bits of it, but for them, it must have been all-consuming, really. Yeah, and unquantifiable in terms of the effects, you know, the effects in our society now. You you mentioned there, though, that your family were almost medical. You became a journalist. Why? <laughs> well, um, well, as I said, my dad was a dentist, and whenever I was a, a younger, he always had the surgery in the house. Yeah. So we were all involved to a greater or lesser extent. Uh, you know, whenever his receptionist was on holiday, um, what mum would have uh, filled in for her or whenever mm-hmm. I was older, I did it. And I mean, I loved it. Actually, it was great. Very nice meeting all his patients. And uh, it was good fun. Uh, but, you know, you had to be quite responsible and so on as well. Yeah. Um, I just, um, I think, kind of briefly toyed with the idea of doing something in that line. But um, I wasn't very good at science uh, and that just wasn't going to happen. And actually, I went to university. I decided I wanted to be a politician then. Mm-hmm. Heaven help me. Um, <laughs> and uh, my uh, excellent um, class teacher suggested that the best thing for me to do was a law degree. So I went yeah. to Queen's to do law and um, met a lot of journalists and so on when I was there, because there were a lot of them around in the early 70s. And they seemed to be having a better time than, um, than, the politicians. than any of the politicians and lawyers that I knew. So, <laughs> so I went down that route instead. And are you glad you did? I am, yeah. I didn't have to wear black for my entire life. Mm. And um, I think being a lawyer, um, I mean, I wanted to be a barrister and I suppose I wanted to be a criminal barrister. Mm. And I think that's... I think that's a pretty hard job too. You know, you meet yeah. a lot of not very nice people. Yeah. And um, the, you know. yeah, the one thing, looking back on journalism, I always think it's, I had an enormous amount of fun and I ended up in situations and in places um, that, you know, you, you couldn't pay to go to. Just the kind of, the BBC was paying me to go and do things and speak to people that you could never have imagined. You know, I just have a store of, of amazing memories. It's yeah. wonderful, really. Wonderful yeah, so, way to experience human nature. Absolutely. I mean, the opportunities that it presented and and I suppose the people that that you met and, you know, in the 70s, yeah. 80s, 90s, um, and, and it'll be in the case with you too, you know, some of the world's leading journalists would have been in and out of Northern yeah. Ireland. And, yeah. and most of them, I have to say, treated the kind of, local foot soldiers with uh, complete respect, which yeah, was, yeah, you know, so, yeah. which was Absolutely. very nice. Yeah. Um, uh, and I mean, I was hugely lucky like you. I mean, there were times you had to pinch yourself and think, am I really here? You yeah. know, I mean, we, we did uh, one of my programs from New York for a week. Uh, I went to Cambodia with um, Christian Aid and did yeah. uh, programs from there for both for Radio Ulster and for uh, for Women's Hour. Yeah. Um, I went to Japan. You know, I had some oh, times. Time. Great. And you mentioned something earlier, though, I, I want to just go back to. Um, you said you, you were or you may have been the only woman in the, the BBC Northern Ireland newsroom when you started. What was that like? Well, it was par for the course at that stage. I had been the only woman in the East Antrim Times. Um, I had followed the previous one, you know, she, mm. and she had followed the one before her. Um, mm. And actually, I mean, the, the first woman was Diane Harron, uh, the second one was Gillian Chambers, and I was the third. Uh, and each of us ended up in the BBC at various different times. Mm. Um, so I suppose that was just sort of, you know, it's sort of what you expect. Is you know, if that's if that's the way it is, that's the way it is. I, mm. You know, I was conscious of the fact that that I was the, the only woman in the newsroom. 
But it, it had been the case in the Belfast Telegraph and it had been mm. the case in the East Antrim Times. I mean, I knew it was far from ideal, but um, and, and it's absolutely not the case now and quite quickly ceased to be the case. But um, yes. yeah, it, I mean, it had its disadvantages and its advantages, I suppose, if I'm being yeah. really honest. You know, um, yeah, because I suppose if you are if if you're the only woman, if you're a pioneer, it, it doesn't get political at that point. Or you know what I'm trying to say is it's only when when the numbers start to equalise that that maybe women can get together and say, "Hang on, we're not being paid the same." But but even that, I mean, that still hasn't happened. And you you were vocal in that in terms yeah. of female versus male pay in the BBC. I mean, that's still a huge issue. It is. It is indeed. Yeah. And I have to say, you know, um, uh, it's wonderful to have the freedom to be able to talk about it because yes. um, I thought that I, I, I think one of the most disappointing things that happened to me in the kind of 44 years was the way the BBC dealt with that. You know, why did they not just say, you know, we've we've got this seriously wrong and yeah. we're going to make it right instead of yes. all of that nonsense yeah. about, you know, we're going to be gold standard, you know, just get up to a kind of base rate before mm. you start aiming for, you know, the top of the Empire State Building yeah. and don't don't go through this whole palaver that they did where, you know, so many women had to get to the kind of steps of the court uh, before yeah. anything happened and you know they weren't prepared to admit that it was an equal pay case and so on yeah. you know my, my husband talks about one of his former bosses who had this great saying which was that you know when all else fails the truth isn't the worst option yes. um you yes. know just yeah. admit it know, and yeah. move on yeah and, and admit it as a kind of uh, as a mistake as an expression of our our, our wider social and cultural mistake and say we're going to try and fix it, but, but but to fight it on so many levels just seemed really obtuse. Absolutely, and and adding insult to injury too. I mean, it just and all that does is just make you even more furious yeah. and even more determined. Yeah. <laughs> so well, look, um, uh, I, I'm supposed to be kind of jotting down your your various inspirations. Um, so far, we've talked about journalism, but there's a couple of subjects I want to cover before we finish. Uh, what have been your inspirations, you think, during your your career? What are the things that you go to when times are tough? People, books, anything? Um, I suppose people, you know, my family have always been very important. Um, I have three mm. uh, lovely kids and I now have uh, four and eight-ninths grandchildren. <laughs> right, <laughs> nearly there with that, that last Very one. nearly, yeah. Uh, I'm sure you must be dying to see them again. Yeah, I'm sure. Okay, I am. Have. I mean, I've I've been able to see that there are two wee boys who live here, um, mm. and I've been able to see them a bit, and they're very sweet, and you know they'll kind of run over to kind of throw their arms around me, and then they know they can't, so they just sort of stop, which is mm-hmm. not so good. But anyway, they're, mm-hmm. they're doing what they're, what they're asked to do, which is lovely. Uh, mm-hmm. I have another one, uh, Finn, he lives in London with his dad and, uh, and his mum. And um, my young, youngest, younger daughter uh, is expecting next week. Um, and my middle daughter, who has the two wee boys, she had a little girl two weeks ago. So, oh wow! So, uh, so that lots of additions yeah. to your family. That's amazing. So they're great. And I suppose I've always enjoyed the company of my friends as well. Mm. I mean, I do. I like um, I like being in the garden. Um, I do mm. quite a bit of gardening, and and I've um, baked for Ireland in the last year. Mm. Yeah, have you? 
yeah, thankfully I haven't eaten all of it myself. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I tried everything last year. I tried hot cross buns. Now they're they are a real hassle. I've got to say. Are they and, right? Yeah, and they no matter how I, whatever I tried, um, they didn't taste as nice as the ones from Marks. So yeah. I gave up on that, and I couldn't get the I couldn't get the cross to work properly. Yeah. Uh, it kind of tends to sort of dribble off the edges, and then it doesn't look so good. Yeah, um, so I've stuck to the apple and cinnamon muffins and the wheat and bread, at which I'm. Oh, it sounds good. I do love wheat and bread. I, I, I want to talk to you um, before we finish about a, a, another seminal event in your life, and that was your the death of your brother, David. Um, and I'm just wondering. Uh, I mean, you can fill us in on the context of that. Uh, I was thinking about it actually in the context of a recent television show. It's a sin. Um, the Russell T. Davis show, but. Uh, Tell for those people who aren't familiar with what happened, if you could, um, if you wouldn't mind filling us in. Well, David was my um, younger brother. There were just the two of us. Um, he was the only boy of our generation in the Austin family, and he was the the youngest. Um, so um, he was a very much wanted uh, boy, and actually got all the names: David, James, Stanley, Glover, Austin. Uh, oh covered all the bases. Um, he um, he went off to university in London in, I suppose he was three years younger than I was, so he would have gone about 1972, three yeah. maybe, um, did biology at Queen Mary College. And um, my kind of recollection of dates and times and so on is a bit dodgy to be honest, because you know, you. You only think about the dates so on afterwards rather than at the time. Anyway, um, he uh, he he was gay and told me that he was gay before he told my mum and dad. In fact, he didn't tell mum and dad at all. I had to tell them. Um, and uh, he, he stayed in London whenever he finished his degree. Um, and in the kind of late 80s, very late 80s, early 90s, maybe about... 91 I'm not honestly sure I was working on PM at that stage and um, he rang me uh, at work one day to say that um, that he had that he was HIV positive mm-hmm. and um, he was he wasn't very well at that stage uh, as well he I think he had shingles and um, anyway, he he died in a couple of years later in October uh, from AIDS, um, and it was a really difficult kind of two or three years at that stage. I mean, he'd been kind of up and down. I think, suppose mentally, mentally and physically, if I think think back on it, for a couple of years before that, uh, he uh, he was he was quite different to me. He was much quieter and much less resilient, I think, if I'm being honest, mm-hmm. um, less tough. Uh, mm. And, um, you know, he was always, oh, David, you know, such a lovely fella. And that was true. He was an absolutely lovely guy. Um, and everybody adored him. Uh, and everyone was devastated. Uh, and my kids were small at that stage, uh, but they were really fond of Uncle David. Um, you know, we would have seen him He'd have come home quite often at Christmas and Easter, and we went and saw him in London as well. Mm. Um, and he was great fun. They they just enjoyed being with him so much. But it was it was difficult for me. But I thought it was going to kill my dad. I really did. That was the worst bit. Really? 
And, and did your dad know that he he was HIV positive, that he had AIDS? He did, yeah. Um, I had I had had to tell them. Um, and then uh, kind of towards the end when David was, was really ill, when he wasn't able to travel over here, uh, mum and dad and I went over to see him in London. And I mean, it was pretty plain at that stage that really that we weren't going to see him again. I did see him again, but uh, but I think they knew that that was the last time that they would see him. And dad was devastated. And there was still at that time in the early mid 90s, I, I guess, still a stigma about the disease. Look, definitely. You know, I don't think my, my, I mean, my parents were never, never ashamed of David, but um, mm. uh, well, I suppose in one way and look, fair enough, you know, they felt it wasn't anybody else's business apart from theirs. Yes. Um, you know, if, if our family all knew what had happened and their good friends knew what had happened. Yeah. knew exactly what had happened, if, 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 if you get me. But I mean, if it was somebody else who was just a sort of random person or, yeah. uh, you know, uh, somebody being... Yeah. None of their business. But yeah, the, well, the, the, my, they always just said that he had died um, from cancer. Well, he did have cancer. Um, you know, we, uh, that's one of the things with AIDS. You know, you your autoimmune system is completely shot yes. and... and he had cancer and, and a number of other uh, problems too. So um, well, it was fairly true. I mean, I must say in that context, you know, of it not being other people's business, I'm, I'm grateful for you talking to me about it now, particularly in the context, uh, presumably you've seen, it's a sin that, uh, did you manage to I saw some. It? I saw some of it. Um, I, sure it was a very De- difficult uh, thing to Declan, see. Uh, Declan Harvey uh, and I had, a, and, and Tara Mills and I had a conversation about it on Evening Extra. A couple of weeks ago, and he had asked me if I would would watch it, and and yeah. uh, and I, I uh, was very willing to do so. I can't pretend I watched it all. Uh, yeah. I watched um, I watched quite a bit of it, and it was it was uh, it was it was it brought back such some really nice memories. I must say, I mean, there were some bits of it that I found really difficult, yeah. um, but there were other bits that really um, reminded me of how joyful David mm. could be yeah. and his friends and, you know, that kind of boyish innocence, you know, mm. which mm-hmm. out the window. Um, I, I, I'm going to write his name down as, as one of your inspirations um, too, if you don't mind. No, I think you should. Um and again, you know, thank, thank you for talking to me about that. So my final question really is uh, about the future. We're all, I suppose, cautiously starting to get a little bit optimistic about the rest of 2021 and, and 2022 as well. Uh, how do you see it uh, going for you? What would you like to achieve? What would you like to do as we re-enter some kind of normal life? Well, I'd like to get to the 15th of April when I get my second job. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I suppose, well, one of the things that this has all done is to um, narrow your focus a bit, I think, at least that, that's the way I feel about it. Mm. Um, I don't have any grandiose plans for going anywhere, um, you know, world tours or whatever, mm. uh, certainly mm. not going on a cruise. And, I'm still going to think long and hard before I get in the plane. 
Yeah. But um, I would really like to be able to spend some time with my grandchildren to mm -hmm. see my son and daughter-in-law in London. Um, I'd, uh, I'd like to be able to go out for a meal. Mm. Um, I'd like to be able to go somewhere. When we, did, we got away for a few days uh, last year in between lockdowns, just, up, mm. just um, down south, and we had a lovely time. I'd like to do that again. Uh, and I'd like to um, be able to you know, get Molly and Frank onto a beach with a bit more mm -hmm. regularity. You know, mm -hmm. We have mm -hmm. a house in Donegal, and we spent most of the first lockdown there because... It had no stairs and that was easier with a broken leg. Mm -hmm. um, but I'd like to be able to go get back to the point where we could travel freely between the two. Mm. Um, and, Simple uh, things then. I think, uh, I think exactly. that's... Yeah. We're, we're all much more uh, willing now to settle for simple things. Um, I, wonder, I wonder, will we all, um, you know, always be grateful for those simple things or, or like human nature being what it is, will it all, you know, snap back to normal in a couple of years and we'll forget, you know, this will just be a distant memory. I don't know. I can't imagine not being grateful for simple things, you know, for the rest of my life. I, I think I'll always appreciate it. I think it's changed the way we look at things really, hasn't it? You know, it's like a different prism. Um, you know, a gorgeous day like today, the sun's absolutely screeching down outside. Uh, yeah. You know, we're going to get out for a walk. That's you know that's yeah. pretty good, really. Same um, here. Exactly the same here. Yeah. But having yeah. said that, I would really like to get back to Italy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I would, I would, I would love to. Um, just a little, yeah. Just a bit more freedom. I will, I will appreciate it so much. But look, I'm going to read you um, some of the things I've jotted down. Uh, so, I put down actually your husband and, and the way that he's dealt with his. Uh, his, his broken leg over lockdown, your family and particularly your your grandchildren, um, journalism itself as a as a way of life and as a way of engaging with the world and a way of spending your life, uh, gardening, baking, and your brother uh, David. Is that a fair up some of your little inspirations? I think and so. Big. Yeah, there, there was one other one at the start of the first lockdown. You know, at the stage mm. when it was with that we were all in the kind of some version of the good life that wasn't on television. Yeah, and we yeah. were doing all of those things that happened in Victorian times. So this is my mum's recipe book, which I started oh. posting online. Oh wow! Um, handwritten. Handwritten. There's her chocolate box gato. I don't know if you can. It's oh, so bright I can here. see it. Yeah, amazing. Look, look how, how neat the handwriting is. I know, but then it gets to the back where you get the um, her wheat and bread and uh, the Christmas pudding, and it looks like. Oh, it, it, it's all covered. It's covered in food and, and splashes. That's wonderful. Wonderful. So that so was been, great. So these are the recipes you've been baking from? That some of them are, yes. The, the wheat and bread is. Uh, and actually, at the, at the beginning of that first lockdown, I post, tried to post one of those a day. And uh, we tried cooking various ones. But then you get to the point where so many of them have things like dripping and lard and so on in them. And you think, yes. like, come on. Yeah. <laughs> so. what, a what a great treasure to have them. So that was great fun. And she was a real inspiration. She was a wee tiny woman. She was, uh, she uh, invented, the, the word resilience was invented for my mother. She was right. utterly practical um, and totally fantastic. And I'm delighted to say that my first granddaughter uh, is called Marnie Irene, which is my mum's name. Bell Kearney. Marnie and is, is a lo Marnie's lovely. Marnie's your first name. Yeah, it's yeah. a lovely and name, then, isn't and, it? And, her, and then your mum's name is Irene. 
yeah, so that's a great memory for her. It, so. it sounds like Irene would have been pretty good uh, during this last year. She would have taken it in her stride by the sound. Oh, absolutely. Thing. She'd have gone back into the wartime mentality. Yeah, <laughs> so. yeah, I'm sure she would have. Um, well, look, Wendy, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thanks for sharing your little inspirations. I really enjoyed the chat. Um, and uh, yeah, best of luck with, uh, with getting out of lockdown and enjoying life once again. You too, Declan. Lovely to talk to you.